One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at the feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money letter had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Hannah. Well, verse 47 kind of sums up where we're going in the main point of things. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He's, he who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. When we're aware of how much we've been forgiven, it's going to translate into how we love others, and to be aware of how much we've been forgiven, we need to be aware of how much we've sinned, and that takes us to a place of repentance. So we are going to look today at how the gospel matters in repentance, but in understanding how the gospel matters in repentance. Repentance isn't to take us to a place where we just kind of feel shame in the corner. No, it's to take us to a place of an awareness of what God has done. And the net effect of repentance is worship of the living God and an awareness of his abundant mercy. So as we study the text this morning, I think we need God's help. So why don't we pray? Father, I ask that you would meet us this morning as we open your word that we would be freshly aware of how much we have been forgiven. And I ask God that you'd transform our hearts, that you would move us to, to love others in such a way that reflects our awareness of how much 
we have been loved. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as you look back at your Bibles, uh, we're going to be talking about a dinner party. Because right here at the beginning, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Uh, So Jesus was asked to come to a dinner party, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Sounds simple enough, but for us, uh, as the story goes on, we realize that the the Pharisee didn't do some things that would have been common courtesies or ways that you would respect your guests. So there's some things that we just need to jump into understanding the first century and what was going on there to kind of understand the significance of what's going on at this dinner party. So Jesus comes in and it says he takes his place at the table, but we realize some things haven't happened. A, a kiss of peace, which was custom for them, where, uh, you know, hands would have been placed on the shoulder. Maybe you, I have some relatives that are European kind of in descent. Whenever we go to their house, this kind of happens. We go and they kiss you on the one cheek and one's on the other. And the first time it happens, you're like, whoa, that's weird. But like, that's just what they do in their culture. And that would have been normal and customary and, and showed love and respect to your guests. That didn't happen for Jesus. It would have been custom for, to Uh, wash feet because they were wearing sandals. Their feet were dirty as they trudged around. There were no paved roads. And so when they would come to dinner, their feet were often washed by one of the lowliest of servants. Well, Jesus' feet weren't washed that day. And then guests were often anointed with oil. No kindness was paid to Jesus. Now, we don't really have kind of similar things, but there was an obvious awkwardness that it would have been happening at this moment. I was trying to think what would be awkward in our culture is it'd be kind of like, you know, if you go to somebody's house for dinner and it's the wintertime and you take your coat off and you're getting ready to go hang it somewhere and then the person who has you over just kind of turns and walks away and you're just kind of standing there with your coat like, what, what do I do? And when you ask, hey, where should I put my coat? They start talking to somebody else. That would be awkward. And then when it's time for you to sit down, they're like, oh, you're sitting at the kids' table. And those things would be awkward, but they don't really grasp the awkwardness that would have been happening right here. And everybody present would have been aware because Jesus was the one that didn't have these things happen to him. Everybody else at the table did. And they would have been in a courtyard. If the house was stately enough to have had a a dinner like this, they probably would have eaten in the courtyard. In the middle of the courtyard, there would have been a table that would have been low to the ground. When they would eat, they wouldn't wouldn't sit at the table because the table's low. They'd been leaning over on, maybe leaning on their left arm. They'd eat with their right arm, kind of like this, not balancing on one leg because they'd been laying down to eat, and in the middle of the courtyard, oftentimes people could kind of come in and out to interact with some of the people at the feast, and even those people would have noticed, like, wait a minute, this guy's feet are dirty and everybody else's aren't, or they would have seen what would have happened when Jesus came in. So everything is awkward. And then the story goes PG-13 and gets really awkward, because then a woman walks in unexpectedly and does something completely blowing everybody's mind. This is what happens. Look back at your Bibles, verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
Now, the, in the original language, it has more the, the flavor of like, oh, look, a woman, like one of those kind of women. That would have been kind of the, you know, what was going on. There would have been starting some conversations when she walked in the door. What's going on? Because this woman likely could have been just uh, the wife of someone who was a known sinner in the community, but likely she was a prostitute. Someone who sold herself. She would have had a reputation. The fact that she entered the room would have broken kind of social norms. And she's coming in and she's got something in her hand. It says an alabaster flask. So something that would be something like the top of this bottle, like ceramic kind of looking uh, a container that would have held some kind of ointment. But for her, it would likely would have been smaller because she wouldn't have had the money to, to pay for those kinds of things. So as she's walking in, she's on a mission and she's probably shaking because people are aware you know, in our day and age, this would have been the moment where people would have gotten out their phones and started streaming on social media that something has happened. Can you believe this is going on? This is going on right now. All kinds of comments would have been streaming through because this woman comes in and she's got this ointment and she comes in and she makes her way. As everyone, the, there's kind of a hush in the room. Maybe there's, there's murmuring going on and she kind of makes her way around behind Jesus who's laying down at the table. And, and she's there for a reason because she's, she's likely encountered Jesus somewhere along the way as he's proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God and healing people she was touched in her heart, and she was coming to bring honor. And it didn't matter what was going on in the room. It didn't matter who was watching her. No, she sits down, kneels down maybe at the foot of, of Jesus, and she is overwhelmed. She's so overwhelmed that she starts crying so many tears that it starts hitting Jesus' feet and probably mixing with the dirt on his feet because his feet hadn't been washed. And she realizes that she's overwhelmed to, to go to anoint his feet. She needs to wash his feet because no one else washed his feet. And she doesn't have a towel because she's not the one who's the servant who would have been cleaning it. She did, couldn't afford that. What does she have? She has her hair. And so she lets her hair down to wash and wipe Jesus' feet. Now, in that moment, you and I are thinking, yeah, well, she dips her hair down. That's kind of unusual. But in that context, that would have, that would have been like a woman ex exposing herself. But she's not worried about the others around. She's worried about the one whom she's at his feet. And she anoints his feet and her tears that she's just weeping. Many of you have experienced sadness to where the tears just flow and they just flow and they flow and they flow. And that's what she's experiencing because she's at Jesus' feet. So the tension in the room is palpable. What is Jesus 
going to say? Everybody's watching. Everybody's wondering. There's a woman who is broken over her own sinfulness, but she's at the same time in awe of the one who's right in front of her. And those that are looking on are completely unaware of that. And then, so what is Jesus going to say? And we see here in verse 39. Is that my phone? No. Phew. I see, it's a great song. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome song. So if your phone's got to go off in church, let it be forgiven by David Crowder. Seriously, we all just, that, that's what we're talking about this morning. Thank you for whoever, you, you think, that's totally what was happening for this woman. Whoever that just went off for, like what, what you're experiencing right now and your, your, your heart has already exploded, you may have died already. So there's this awkwardness, and Jesus, what's Jesus going to say? Because in that moment, the host is thinking something. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's not saying this out loud, he's saying it to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Well, because Jesus is God, he, he knows what he's saying. I mean, we know from Psalm 139, God knows what we're going to say before we're going to say it. And so he knows it. So this isn't happening. But I, I can bet that the people in the room knew what he was thinking. Even they might not know his words, they could see it on his face. He would have preferred Jesus to be like, what are you doing, woman? And just kick her. Get her out of there. I can't believe you're doing that. That's kind of the hard attitude of this guy. And this is how Jesus turns and addresses this individual who's, who's likely angry and offended. He gives a profound lesson to this religious leader, basically saying, hey, you're, you're more like this woman than not. So let's look back at our Bibles. This is what happens. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii would be like a day's wage. So one owns 50, one, the other owes uh, 500. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he says, you have judged rightly. Good job. Simple math equation. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He wants Simon to take note of something. He wants him to be aware of something, that they are both in debt. They both had a debt. Simon was probably blind to this fact, but right off the bat, like they both have a debt. It doesn't matter if you have a 500 dinar debt or a 50 dinar debt. In that day and age, one day's wage, you're living basically from paycheck to paycheck. Missing one day would have been cataclysmic. Missing a week would have been absolutely devastating. So frankly, owing 50 days worth of pay, didn't matter if you owe 50 or 500 or 5,000. If you can't pay the debt, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you've got. And there's a reality. They both could not pay the debt. They both couldn't pay the debt. On the outside, it looked like, it looked like she's the 500 sinner and he's the 50 sinner. He's completely missing it. It's right there in front of him. But he would put himself in that category, but neither of them could pay the debt because our Bibles tell us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. All means all. In the original, it means all. All. Everyone. It doesn't mean we can't improve our character or, or work on things, but that does not absolve the debt. Dr. Kent Hughes said this, what we all must understand is that the condition for being forgiven is to realize that we are broke and insolvent. Whether we are accomplished moralists or accomplished sinners, this is the problem. People keep trying to persuade God to accept the currency of their own making. And we try to make currency. We try to make currency it gets God to accept us. Here's some of the currencies that we try to use to pay our debt. The currency of character. I'm, I do good things. I love my wife. I love my kids. I don't lie. That's not going to pay your debt. Sometimes we use the currency of appearance. Well, I do the right Christian stuff or I, I wear the right clothes. You know, I'm modest in my appearance. Some use the currency of good works. I volunteer at the soup kitchen, or maybe I volunteer at Life Plan, or maybe I give my time for this other charity, or the currency of giving, like actually giving money. I'm, I'm good because I'm really generous with my resources. I mean, I, I give money to various things, and I give money to people in need. I, of course, I do, I do it in secret, right? The Bible tells me you don't want the left hand to know what the right hand is doing, so I give it, and so that must earn me something with God. Sometimes we use the currency of church. When the, when the doors are open, we're there. When small group is happening, we, we are there. Whenever there's something going on, I'm there. That's, that God's going to love me more because I do those things. Sometimes we use the currency of politics. I'm part of the correct party. I, I vote for the righteous policies. 
I listen to the right podcasts. I stand for fill in the blank. I'm not blank. Friends, the issue is not what is the right perspective. Because if I started throwing some things out, some of you like your your hearts will start to raise, and if I use certain words that just are buzz buzzwords in politics, like no, no, right there. If you're not Christian, if you if you believe that or if you don't believe that, friends, it's it's not about what's the right perspective. Your perspective does not cover the debt. Whether it is right or whether you perceive it to be right or wrong, it doesn't cover the debt. Your theology doesn't cover the debt. You can read the right textbooks or so you think the right textbooks or listen to the right preachers, know the right theology. Now, absolutely, doctrine is important. Right theology is important. But it's not what pays the debt. All of those things, though they may be Maybe right pursuits. They're like Confederate currency. If you, if you had Confederate currency right now, it would be a nice historic relic. It might, might have some value because it has some historical value, but it's not worth anything when you go to the grocery store. These currencies are not recognized by the Lord. Because they don't pay the debt. The only thing that pays the debt is a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was Jesus, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. That's the only thing that will pay the debt. And both of these two, the Pharisee and the woman who is called the sinner in this passage, they both responded to their understanding of their debt. That's how they responded. They responded based on their understanding of the debt. So let's just kind of look at their responses. Let's start with the Pharisee. His response is self-righteousness and a rejection of Jesus. Take note of the fact he is just aloof completely lacks hospitality when Jesus comes into the room. He thinks of himself, he's so arrogant towards Jesus, he thinks himself better than Jesus. Doesn't have Jesus' feet washed, doesn't give him the holy kiss, doesn't anoint his head with oil. He thinks he's better than Jesus. He completely misses, I mean, we learn from Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The significance of hospitality is huge. But because he's too good for that, he doesn't show that. Take note of his arrogance, his condescending attitude towards the women. He's, he's thinking in his mind. It didn't come out of his mouth, but Jesus knew that he was thinking it. Jesus responds to it. He's appalled by her. He doesn't want to be in the same room with her, let alone be touched by her. Friends, loving those who are living in sin or in a, a place of darkness, they're, they're going to look different than you. 
You may have come to Christ and God's changed you and transformed you, but there are those that are still walking in darkness and they're going to look different and and Jesus wants our eyes to be opened to not be like this guy, not to be like, hey, I don't want to be looking with my physical eyes. I need to be looking with my spiritual eyes because I don't want to look down anyone. There's nobody. There doesn't matter who's the 50 sinner and who's the 500 sinner because likely we are the 500 sinner and they're the 50 sinner, but it doesn't matter because neither of us can pay the debt without Christ and may that inform us as we look at others. But this individual doesn't see the opportunity for mission. He does not see the opportunity to share the gospel, the opportunity to extend grace because he's so arrogant and he's blind. Jesus is right in front of him. Jesus in the flesh is right in front of him. He'd been preaching. He'd been healing. And he fails to encounter Christ. Friends, when we look at the Pharisee, I have to confess, when I come to passages like this, my first inclination is to be like, that's a jerk, I'm not him. And the Lord wants our hearts to be arrested, to go, no, apart from grace, I am him. And so we need to come before him and say, Father, forgive me. Show me if I'm in any way like this individual because I don't want to be like this individual. Let this passage sink deep into my soul. Let conviction come and let's respond. And Jesus gives us the picture of what the response looks like because we aren't just left with the Pharisee. We are given this beautiful picture of this woman who gets it because she responds with repentance and a love for Jesus. Just look back at her. Look at her tears. Her life was marked by constant rejection and guilt and shame. She had repeatedly broken the seventh commandment. She would have been reminded wherever she went. And her tears are an outward display of the brokenness that was happening in her heart. She was broken over her own sin, yet she was in the presence of the very one who could lift her guilt. She wept because even though she long ago was a virgin and that was no more what was thought of her, as she comes to Jesus, he can give her a virgin heart. He can transform her and make her like new. He can wash her sins whiter than the snow. That's the representation of the brokenness that is being expressed in her tears and then her hair. Her reputation is at stake. I already said, like when women didn't take their hair down for anyone other than their husbands. But she's not caring about what the people in the room are thinking about her. She's only caring about what one person thinks about her. So she abandons the social norms so that she can worship the king who's right in front of her. 
Loved ones, I love how you respond in worship, displaying this. And we want to respond in this way. We don't want to come here when we gather on Sundays or when we gather in our small groups and just put on this kind of some social norm. There's, or just, I got to look just right and I don't want to ruffle any feathers and I don't want anyone to look at me. Don't be hindered in your worship as we gather because there's someone next to you. Let the expression come out. Now, I'm not saying be a different person than you are. I get some of us are like me, like we talk with our arms like this, so I kind of sing with my arms like this. It just happens. I just have to watch out who's close by so I don't knock anybody over. But outward expression does look like something. And if we are aware of who's in front of us, that we can know and worship the king, let those expressions come out when we gather together. Don't worry about who's next to you or what they're thinking about you. We're not worshiping for them. We're worshiping the king of kings. Because the reality is, friends, when we get into eternity, all the things that we do are going to go away except for one, and that's worship. We're not going to need to evangelize anymore because everyone there's going to be saved because they're, they're there, Right? We're not going to need to do Bible studies because we're going to be in the presence of the Word. We're not going to, I won't be preaching anymore. Jesus will be present. But the one thing we will do, it will be worship. So when we gather, it's our prayer that we would see Christ like this woman sees Christ. And she humbles herself, and when she humbles herself, she's devoted to the glory of Christ. And it's expressed in her kisses of adoration, because in the text, when it talks about her kisses, it talks about them in such a way that she does it again and again and again and again. C.S. Lewis spoke to this heart that this woman had when he wrote to a little girl. He said to this little girl, he said, if you continue to love Jesus... Nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope you may always do so. Now, C.S. Lewis isn't saying, hey, if you keep loving Jesus, nothing's going nothing's gonna, to wrong is going to go happen in your life. You're not going to have any trials. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, loved one, if you grasp the Savior, if you continue to devote yourself to loving him and to knowing him and to worshiping him, as the trials of life come crashing in, as things happen that don't make sense to you, there is one thing that will make sense. There is one thing that will bring peace. It's knowing Christ. So let's notice her. But above all, let's notice the person that she noticed, the one she walked in the room carrying the flask, not worrying about anyone else, Let's notice Jesus. Jesus is not put off by her. He, he does not, in his nonverbal actions, communicate judgment or shame. Remember, this woman comes right up to his feet and lets down her hair and weeps on his feet. And he's unmoved. 
she senses love that she hasn't sensed from other men. This man's not there to take advantage of her. This man's there to love her and take care of her greatest need because this man is going to serve her by going to the cross for her sins. So friends, don't, don't think you can't ever come to Jesus. Don't, don't ever think that you can't ever come. Don't believe the lie that you've done something so, so vast and so great, so horrible that, no, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not. No. Look at Christ. If you've come to Christ, yeah, I've, I came to Christ and I lived my life well for a while, but then I, I backslid and it's, it's over. No. Those are the lies from the enemy. We need to see the picture of Christ in this passage who in the midst where others are just ready to judge and condemn. No, he steps in between. And this is what he says. He says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's what he says. That's what he says to you, and that's true if you just simply cry out to him. Cry out to him and just confess whatever it is that is burdening your heart. It doesn't have to look pretty. This didn't look pretty. And this is what he will say. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And he who is forgiven much loves much. That's what informs our response to people. That's the first step to application of this truth is just an awareness of how much we have been forgiven. We couldn't pay the debt. You don't actually have to tabulate it. Well, I sinned this much. All you had to do is sin once, and that would separate you from God. You can't pay the debt, but it has been paid. And so we must be, friends, aware of our sinfulness. We're really good in our culture of, of, of whitewashing. Sometimes whitewashing tombs that are empty and cold, like we put on the outside appearance of looking fine. We're not fine, but let's come humbly knowing that, that, yes, though we are sinners, Christ died for our sin. Yes, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians. That's in the past, and don't just think, well, that's for me to be aware that I was sinner, a sinner in the past, but now that I'm saved, I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm not going to consider that anymore. I'm not encouraging you to go on a sin hunt, but we should be aware of our sinfulness. Paul was, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. St. Francis said, there is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. St. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians of the early church. 
He lived a wanton pagan lifestyle, was radically transformed, but he still was aware of his need for grace. Or, or John Newton, who wrote, who wrote the song that we all know, Amazing Grace. Why did he write it? Because he was a slave trader and he was aware of what he had done and he continued to be aware Because there's, there's a danger for us if we, if we, we don't see our weaknesses and, and don't continually realize we need his presence. So our need to be aware of our sin and to confess that sin, to come to a place of a remorse of our sin regularly is not so that we can go into the corner. No, it's so that we can come to the foot of Christ. When I go to pray in the morning, when I remember, say, Lord, forgive me for what I did yesterday. That, that is not me going into the corner to try to beat myself on the back. That's me going to Christ, going, I need you. I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. What we sang today is true every day. So let's have a practice of confession and repentance. And know that when you do, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's not let our sin go unrepentant. Friends, that's, that's happening in our nation right now. If you haven't heard, there, there's revival that's happening in places around the country, in college campuses and some other places. What is the true mark of a revival? It's repentance. That's when people are aware that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they come and they ask for forgiveness of their sins, and they repent. And the things that are often reported on are the fruit of what happens, because when you are aware that your sins are forgiven, you end up like this woman. You are weeping, and you're wanting to worship at the foot of Jesus. And so there's that expression of worship. The response is worship. The response is a passion for Jesus and a zeal for God that maybe you didn't even have when you first came to know Christ. And that's my prayer that we would experience, not just in one day or one season, that we'd have continuous revival in our Christian experience until we see Jesus come back. Because when we see our sinfulness and we come before the Lord, he forgives us and he says, as he said to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The peace that we long for, that everyone is longing for, it only truly comes when you are aware of what Christ has done. And it's amazing how the things of this world go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So let's sit at the feet of Jesus. Because at the foot of the cross, we experience peace. At the foot of the cross, we're reminded of Isaiah 1.18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
he who has forgiven much loves much. So this text should have, have an oddly dual effect in our hearts. It should have the effect of conviction, like I, I am the Pharisee, but by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus, I can be the sinful woman, but the, she's a sinful woman who has been forgiven. She's been forgiven. Now I want to ask the worship team to come up and they're just going to play in the background for a few minutes because at this point I could, I could just pray and we could move on. I think it would be fruitful for us if we just took a few minutes to respond personally to this text. To, to respond if the Lord has brought conviction to your heart to confess that sin and know that that sin is forgiven. So that's, that's the right response to this is to come aware, not to be crushed by the weight of it, but to have our eyes open to the reality of it and to just come and bring it to the foot of the cross. So we're just gonna take a few moments to pray. And I wanna offer if if you feel like you can, in an appropriate way, confess that sin out loud. I'm not, we're not going to go around the room. We're not going to make everybody do this. But if the Lord would, would nudge your heart to just get it out there, confess that out loud. Maybe it's an attitude that you had on your way this morning. Maybe it is something that you're walking through, you realize mistakes that you've made. Maybe it's something specific in your parenting. Maybe it's a relationship that you've got. Maybe it's an attitude that you've had towards others. I don't know. But as it's quiet, certainly confess before the Lord where you are, knowing that your sins are forgiven. But if you're so inclined, just, just say it out loud. And friends, if someone says it out loud, Let's just respond the way that Jesus responded. If they confess something, let's just say, as a church, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is the one who forgives sin. But we can declare that truth so that that brother or sister just knows that that's true. And if you hear that, the things that you confessed in the quiet of your prayer, that resoundingly is true for you. So let's just take a few minutes. Let's bow our heads. Let's not look around the room. And let's just pray. And if the Lord would, would move you to, just confess that sin out loud. Say it. Say it loud enough for folks to hear. We're not trying to embarrass anyone. We just want to come before the Lord and confess our sin. Father, forgive me for not being patient with my children 
for not listening when, when they wanted to communicate. Forgive me for wanting to solve their problem when, when I should just listen. Forgive me, Lord. sister whatever you've quietly confessed before the Lord Jesus says this your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven and all God's people said amen why don't we stand and respond in song